We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Peril at End House. You know, Poirot, I don't think there's anywhere on the south coast as attractive as St. Lou. No wonder they call it the queen of watering places. It's just like being on the Riviera. Mind you, I always think that Cornwall is every bit as fascinating as the south of France. Yeah, so it said on our menu in the restaurant car yesterday, Hastings. Oh, did it? It is hardly a very original observation. We were sitting on one of the terraces of the majestic hotel. Below us lay the gardens, looking almost tropical with their palm trees. The sea was a deep and lovely blue, and the sun was shining with all the single-hearted fervour an August sun should, but in England so rarely does. Only the speedboats roaring across the bay and the buzzing of the marauding wasps disturbed a scene of perfect peace. Tell me, Hastings, is there anything of interest in your paper? Well, nothing much to speak of. Trouble of some sort in China, a swindle in the city, and an outbreak of parrot disease. How very curious. Still no news of Captain Seaton. Well, the man who was flying around the world in that, um, how is he called? Uh... A seaplane. No, no, no. There is another word. Uh... An amphibian. That is it. The albatross. That's what his plane is called. Too bad if the fellow's gone west. But he could always have come down by one of the more remote Pacific islands. Let us trust not one inhabited by cannibals. It must be a pretty plucky chap. That sort of courage makes one feel it's a great thing to be an Englishman. Mm. It consoles for the defeats at Wimbledon. Oh, I, I didn't no, mean... No, me, I am not an amphibian like the machine of the unfortunate Captain Seaton. I prefer to live in one element, the Earth, which is good enough for me. Are you never tempted to renew your detective activities? This passive life suits me admirably. To sit in the sun, what could be more charming? To step from your pedestal at the zenith of your fame, what could be a grander gesture? To hear people say, that is Hercule Poirot. <laughs> there never was anyone like him. There never will be. I am satisfied. I ask no more. Hercule Poirot has solved his last case. Aren't you afraid of tempting the gods? Impossible, mon ami, that anything should shake the will of Hercule Poirot. Impossible, Poirot? Ah, <laughs> you're right, my friend. One should not use such a word. I do not say that if a bullet should strike the wall by my head, I should not investigate the matter. One is human after all. But what, what was that? Only a pebble, mon ami. <laughs> yes. One is human, one is the sleeping dog, but the sleeping dog can be roused. Let us descend into the garden. He set off ahead of me down the steps, which led from the terrace to the rose garden, and as he did so, a girl came hurrying up towards us. Oh! Oh! Oh, Poirot, are, are you all right? Oh, oh, it is my ankle. Let me help you up. Here, here, Poirot, take my arm. Oh, oh, a thousand pardons. Just take it slowly. Oh, mademoiselle, you are most kind. I regret exceedingly that... Ah, oh, my foot, he pains me considerably. Can you stand on it? Oh, oh it, it is the turned ankle that is all. In a few minutes, all will be well, but... If you could help me over to that chair, Hastings. Of course. You and Mademoiselle between you, if she will be so very kind. Just 
just hold on to me. There you are. Oh, thank you. I think I'd better go and get a doctor. No, 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 no. That is not necessary. The ankle turned, that is all. But in a little minute, it will have been forgotten. Mademoiselle, I thank you a thousand times. Please, sit down, I beg you. I really think you ought to get it seen to you. Oh, Mademoiselle, I assure you, it is a bagatelle. In the pleasure of your society, the pain passes already. <laughs> I'm very flattered. It was very fortunate that you happened to be passing, Mademoiselle. You are um, staying at the hotel? Oh, no. I'm meeting some friends in the lounge for cocktails. I live at End House. End House? Over there. Out on the point. Oh, rather an eerie-looking place. Mm, like something out of Edgar Poe. The House of Usher, perhaps. Anyway, I love it. But the place is going to rack and ruin. You are the last of an old family, mademoiselle. Oh, we're nothing very important. But there have been Buckleys there for two or three hundred years. My brother died three years ago, so I'm the last of the family. Oh, that is sad. You live there alone? I wouldn't really put it like that. I'm away a good deal, and when I'm home, there's usually a cheery mob coming and going. <laughs> that is so modern. I was picturing you in a dark, mysterious mansion haunted by a family <laughs> curse. What a picturesque imagination you have. The house isn't haunted. Or if it is, the ghost must be a very kind, protective one. I've had three escapes from sudden death in as many days, so I must bear a charmed life. Escapes from death? Oh, very interesting. Oh, they weren't very exciting. Just accidents. Damn these wasps! There must be a nest of them somewhere. You have been stung, yes? No, but I, I hate it when they come right past your face. One of them just missed me only a few minutes ago. Seem to be all over the place today. The bee in the bonnet, perhaps. And that is a particularly elegant hat you are wearing. Oh, do you think so? Oh, no, I did not mean you to take it off. Her dark hair was ruffled and gave her an elfin look. In fact, there was something elfin about her altogether. The small, vivid face, the enormous dark blue eyes, something haunting and arresting. Was it a hint of recklessness? And there were dark shadows under her eyes. And now I really must be going. They'll be wondering where I've got to. Nick! Nick! What did I tell you? So that's where you've been hiding. Fred is absolutely desperate for a drink. I was just coming. This is Commander Challenger. Uh... Of the British Navy, I presume. Oh, I have a great regard for the British Navy. Really? Come on, George. Let's go and join Freddy and Jim. I hope the ankle will be all right, monsieur. Goodbye. Mm. Ah, yes. Uh, I am sure it will. Uh, goodbye, mademoiselle. Goodbye, Miss Buckley. So, that is one of Mademoiselle's friends, one of her cheery crowd. Oh, but she has left her hat behind. Has the commander a tendresse for her, do you think? <laughs> My dear Poirot, how can I possibly tell? Give me that hat, I'll take it to Oh, her. not yet, no. Some amusement. Really, Poirot? Ah, ah, I grow old and childish, but I am not so completely imbecile as you think. We will return the hat later to End House and thus gain another opportunity of meeting the charming Miss Nick. Poirot, I believe you've fallen in love. She is a pretty girl, is she not? Why are you so interested in her? No, you are under a misapprehension, my friend. I may be interested in the lady, it is true, but 
I am much more interested in her hat. In her hat? You see the reason for my interest? Uh, perfectly plain, fawn felt, with a wide brim. No, 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 I did not ask you to describe the hat. Regard more closely, my dear old imbecile. It is not necessary to use the little grey cells. The eyes will do. Oh, I see what you mean. There's a hole in the brim. Mm. Did you observe the way Mademoiselle flinched when that creature flew past? The bee in the bonnet, the hole in the brim. But a wasp couldn't make a hole like that. Oh, what acumen. No, Hastings, it could not. But a bullet could. A bullet? No, oui. A bullet like this one. Where did you get hold of that? A spent bullet. It was that which fell at our feet when we were talking together on the terrace. And I thought it was just a pebble. Was that why you went through that pantomime about twisting your ankle? Aha, you see, at last. I wish to make the acquaintance of Mademoiselle Nick because I believe that it was at her that the bullet was fired. One inch of a difference, and the hole would not have been through the hat, but through the head. Good Lord! But he made a grave mistake. That would-be murderer, when he shot at his victim within a dozen yards of Hercule Poirot. And what was it that Mademoiselle herself said? Uh, that she'd had three escapes from sudden death in as many days. Exactly, my friend. And now there has been a fourth. The peril is very close at hand. I've been thinking. An admirable exercise, mon ami. Continue it. That shot must have been fired quite close to us. And yet the funny thing is that we didn't hear it. Hmm? It is rather odd. No, it is not at all odd. All this morning, speedboats have been making trips round the bay. <gasps> Ma foi, you could fire a machine gun almost and never notice it when one of those abominations goes pop, pop, popping out to sea. Ah, and here comes Mademoiselle Nick and more of her cheery crowd. Evidently, they are going to take lunch here, and therefore, when a suitable opportunity presents itself, I must return the hat. For the remainder of our meal, my friend was silent and unusually distant, keeping his eye entirely on Miss Buckley and her friends. Challenger was sitting next to her, and there was a tall, fair, rather exquisite young man with a supercilious manner and a tired drawl. <laughs> the woman sitting beside him was an unusual type. A weary Madonna describes her best. Her face was dead white and emaciated, yet curiously attractive. Her eyes were light grey with very large pupils. At the end of the meal, the two men left to inspect a very ostentatious, gleaming red car, which belonged to the languid young man, and the two women went to take coffee in the lounge. Now is our opportunity to have a little word with Mademoiselle Nick. I will see if I can arrange a meeting at End House where we can be away from the rest of them. He marched into the lounge with an almost military determination and drew Miss Buckley to one side. Mademoiselle, may I crave one little word with you? I was left feeling rather ill at ease, not knowing whether to strike up a conversation with Miss Buckley's companion or not. She was staring at me with a look of curious detachment. Oh, why don't you sit down until your friend is finished with Nick? 
thank you. <laughs> um, Miss Buckley very kindly came to the rescue of my friend when he twisted his ankle this morning. Mm, so Nick told me. There doesn't seem to be much wrong with his ankle now, does there? Just a momentary sprain. <laughs> well, at least I'm glad to hear that Nick didn't invent the whole thing. Hmm. She's the most heaven-sent little liar that ever existed, you know. Is that so? She's one of my oldest friends, but I always think loyalty's a tiresome virtue, don't you? Nick told us all a marvellous story about something going wrong with the brakes of her car. But Jim Lazarus, he was with us just now, said there was nothing in it at all. And he's by way of being quite expert about cars. Fortunately, I was spared any further embarrassing disclosures about her friend by the return of Poirot, who gave a quick bow to the listless Madonna and drew me hastily away to the privacy of his sitting room. It is all arranged, my friend. We are to call on Mademoiselle at End House at half past six. How did you manage it? Well, she was a little unwilling, naturally. I could see the thoughts passing through her mind. Who is he, this little man? Is he the bounder? The moving picture director. <laughs> if she could have refused, she would. But it is difficult. Asked like that on the spur of the moment, it is easier to consent. It still seems perfectly incredible to me to take a pot shot at somebody in a hotel garden. Only a madman would do such a thing. I disagree with you. Given one condition, it would be quite a reasonably safe affair. To begin with, the garden is deserted and there is plenty of cover. Trees, palms, flowering shrubs. Anyone could hide and be unobserved while waiting for Mademoiselle to come that way. But how could he be certain that she would? Because Mademoiselle Nick is one of those people who is always late and she would take the shortcut. Uh -huh. The way through the hotel garden is the most direct route from End House. All the same, the risk was enormous. He might have been seen, and you can't make the shooting seem like an accident. Not like an accident, no. What do you mean by that? Nothing. A little idea. Leaving it aside for the moment, there is, as I said just now, the essential condition. And uh, what is that? Surely you can tell me, Hastings? I wouldn't like to deprive you of the pleasure of being clever at my expense. Oh, ho, 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 ho. the sarcasm, the irony. <laughs> well, my friend, what leaps to the eye is this. The motive for the attempt to kill Mademoiselle Nick cannot be obvious. If it were, then, as you say, the risk would be too great. People would be bound to say... I wonder where Sonso was when the shot was fired. No, the identity of our would-be killer cannot be obvious. That is what disturbs me. I want to find out about these so-called accidents that Mademoiselle dismisses so lightly. From the outside, End House was very large and very dreary-looking and was clearly in a bad state of repair. Now, how about a cocktail? Oh, yes. I'm told it's one of the few things I do really well. The inside of the house could not have been a greater contrast. The drawing room was full of sunshine and the light of the sea. The curtains were of faded brocade, but the covers were new and gay, and the cushions were positively hectic. I'm simply devoured with curiosity. Am I the long-lost heroine you've been seeking for your next film? <laughs> oh, he was so solemn at lunchtime. I feel it can't be anything else. Here, try this. Thank you. Thank you, mademoiselle. Mm. Excellent. Well... To your good health, mademoiselle. Mm. 
To your continued good health. Is there something the matter? Yes, mademoiselle. This. You know what it is? Yes, of course I do. It's a bullet. It was not a wasp that flew past your face in the garden this morning. It was this bullet. Oh, you mean that some idiot was firing off bullets in the hotel garden? It would seem so. But I never heard a gun go off. I want to know about these other so-called accidents that you mentioned. I want to be sure that that was what they were. But what else could they be? Now leave me to be the judge of that, mademoiselle. What if someone is attempting your life? Oh, but who on earth would want to kill me? I'm not the beautiful young heiress. I only wish I were worth killing. But I'm afraid there isn't a hope. Will you tell me about these accidents, mademoiselle? Of course. But there's really nothing to it. I'm sorry I even mentioned them. There's a heavy picture that hangs over my bed. It fell down in the night. As luck would have it, I happened to hear a door banging somewhere in the house, and I went down to shut it. Otherwise, it would probably have bashed my head in. And what about accident number two? Oh, that's even more feeble. There's a scrambly cliff path down to the sea, which I use most days when I go to bathe. A boulder got dislodged somehow and came roaring down, just missing me. It gave me the fright of my life. I'm sure it must have done. The third thing was quite different. Something went wrong with the brakes of my car. I don't quite know what. The garage man did explain, but I couldn't really follow it. If I'd gone down the hill towards the town, there would have been a devil of a smash. But owing to my always leaving something behind, I turned back and only ran into the laurel hedge. And you can't say what the actual trouble was? If you really want to know, you can ask them at Mott's garage. I think what it boiled down to was that something had come loose or, or been unscrewed. Where do you keep your car, mademoiselle? In the shed, round the other side of the house. So anyone could tamper with the car without being noticed? Well, yes, I suppose so. Hmm. Oh, but it's so silly. No, mademoiselle, she's not silly. I tell you, you are in grave danger. Do you know who I am? I'm afraid I don't. Should I? I am Hercule Poirot. Oh, yes. You are not at ease. That means, I suppose, that you have not read my books. Well, no, not, not all of them, but, but I know the name, of course. Mademoiselle, you are a polite little liar. <laughs> I forgot, you are only a child. You would not have heard. So quickly does fame pass. My friend will tell you. Uh, Monsieur Poirot is... Um, was a great detective. Oh, <laughs> is that all you can find to say? Tell Mademoiselle that I am a detective unsurpassed, the greatest that ever lived. Well, that's no longer necessary. You've told her yourself. Ah, yes, but one should not have to sing one's own praises. <laughs> There's no point in keeping a dog and having to bark oneself. Who is the dog, by uh, the way? <laughs> My name's Hastings. Oh, 1066 and all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but seriously, it's very kind of you and all that. But it's nothing more than a series of silly accidents. You are as obstinate as the devil. Well, that's where I get my name from. My grandfather was supposed to have sold his soul to the devil. Everyone round here called him Old Nick. Oh, he was a wicked old man, but great fun. I adored him. I went everywhere with him. And so they called us Old Nick and Young Nick. My real name is Magdala. What a very unusual name. Yes, it's a kind of family one. There have been lots of Magdalas in the Buckley family. There's one on the wall over there. Oh, and very beautiful she is too. And the portrait over the mantelpiece 
Is that your grandfather, mademoiselle? Yes, that's old Nick. Quite striking, isn't it? Well, Jimmy Lazarus wanted to buy it. He offered me fifty pounds for it, but I wouldn't sell. I've got a great affection for old Nick. There was a saying round here that everything he touched turned to gold. But he was a gambler and soon ran through it all. When he died, he left hardly anything beside the house and the land. Listen to me, mademoiselle, and I implore you to be serious. Your life is in great danger. Today, somebody shot at you with a Mauser pistol. A Mauser? Yes. Why do you ask? Uh, do you know of anyone who has a Mauser pistol? I've got one myself. You have? Yes, it was my father's. He brought it back from the war, and it's, it's been knocking around the house ever since. I saw it only the other day in the drawer of the bureau. Perhaps you should check that it is still there. Anything to keep the great detective happy. That's funny. I could have sworn I saw it in here. I must have dreamt it. No, it's not here. I expect it's somewhere around. You remember, Hastings, that I told you I had a little idea? Well, it was correct. Hmm? Supposing Mademoiselle had been found shot lying in the hotel garden and beside her hand, just fallen from it, would have been found her own pistol. There would be suggestions, no doubt, of worry, of sleeplessness. Well, that's true enough. Everybody's been telling me I've been looking nervy lately. They would have brought in a verdict of suicide. Mademoiselle's fingerprints on the pistol and nobody else's. Oh, terribly amusing. Ah, yes, pa. But you understand, mademoiselle, there must be no more of this. Four accidents, yes, but the fifth time may be different. Bring out your rubber-tired hearses. But we are here, my friend and I, to prevent all that. Yes, we'll look after you, Miss Buckley. Oh, how frightfully nice of you. <laughs> and so it is time for me to begin to act as the conventional detective and to ask the conventional questions. Who profits by your death, mademoiselle? Oh, I can't imagine. That's why it all seems such nonsense. All I have in the world is this beastly old barn of a house. And it's mortgaged up to the hilt. The roof leaks, and there can't be a diamond mine or anything exciting like that hidden in the cliff. It is mortgaged, you say? Yes. I had no alternative. You see, there were two lots of death duties on top of one another. First, my grandfather died, just six years ago, and then my brother. That just about put the lid on the financial position. And your father? He was invalided home from the war then got pneumonia and died in 1919. And after you, mademoiselle, who is your nearest relative? My cousin, Charles Weiss. He's a solicitor in St. Lou. Quite good and worthy, but very dull. Does he manage your affairs for you? I suppose you could say that, not that I've really any to manage. He fixed up the mortgage for me and made me let the lodge. The lodge? And to whom is it let? To some Australians. Croft their name is. Too terribly friendly for words. Always bringing me sticks of celery and peas and that sort of thing. Mrs. Croft's a cripple and lies on the sofa all day. But they pay the rent and that's what matters. And now for your friends, mademoiselle. The ones with whom you are lunching today, for instance. Well, Freddy Rice, Frederica, is practically my greatest friend. Oh, she's had a rotten life. Married to the most frightful beast drink and drugs and all that. 
She left him a couple of years ago. Since then, she's just drifted about. Oh, I wish to goodness she'd marry Jimmy Lazarus. Is that the art dealer in Bond Street? Yes. Huh? Jim's the only son. Rolling in money. He's devoted to Freddy and they go everywhere together. And where is Mrs Rice's husband? Oh, God knows. He's dropped out of everything. It makes it horribly awkward for Freddy. You can't divorce a man when you don't know where he is. And what about the good Commander Challenger? I've known George for about five years. It seems like all my life. He's a good soul, George. He wants you to marry him, hmm? He does mention it now and again in the small hours of the morning or after the second glass of port. But you won't accept him. What would be the use of George and I marrying one another? We've neither of us got a bean. And he must be 40 if he's a day. In fact, he has one foot in the grave. <laughs> and you are young and beautiful, mademoiselle, and the sun shines, and there is life and love ahead of you, and I am determined that you shall live to enjoy them. Tell me, have you a friend you can trust? Well, there's Freddie. No, oh, other than Mrs. Rice. Why do you want to know? Because I want you to have a friend to stay with you immediately. Well, uh, there's Maggie, I suppose. I could get hold of her, I expect. Who's Maggie? Maggie Buckley, one of my Yorkshire cousins. I usually have her to stay here sometime or other in the summer. Oh, she's not much fun, though. Her father's a clergyman, and she's one of those painfully pure girls with the kind of hair that has just become fashionable by accident. She will do admirably. I certainly don't know who else I could get hold of at this time of year. But if it isn't the choir boy's outing or the mother's bean feast, she'll come all right. I'll wire her to come on Monday. Why not tomorrow? On Sunday trains and all the way from Yorkshire? She'll think I'm dying if I suggest that. No, I'll say Monday. Very well. Now tell me, mademoiselle, have you ever made a will? Yes, about six months ago before my op. Keskodit, your op? My appendix operation. Aha. Uh -huh. Someone said I ought to make a will, so I did. And what were the terms of the will? I left End House to Charles Weiss. Mm -hmm. I hadn't much else to leave, but what there was I bequeathed to Freddie. To Mrs Rice? Yes. Mm. I have a nasty feeling that the liabilities would probably exceed the assets. So, now we will take our leave. But I must warn you to be careful. Of what? Yes, you are right. In which direction to be careful? But do not fear, mademoiselle. In a little while I shall have discovered the truth. And until then I should beware of bombs and boulders, falling pictures and arrows dipped in the secret poison of South American Indians. Mm. You make a joke of everything, do you not? <laughs> but four attempts on your life is no laughing matter. Murder is not to be mocked, mademoiselle. In part one of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Captain Hastings by Simon Williams. Nick Buckley, Gemma Saunders, Frederica Rice, Susanna Hamilton, George Challenger, Andrew Wincott. Peril at End House is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams.
Poirot and I were sitting on the terrace of the majestic hotel at St. Lou in Cornwall one fine summer morning when a spent bullet struck the wall close by. The intended victim, whose broad-brimmed hat the bullet had pierced with a neat little hole, was a girl called Nick Buckley, the owner of End House, which stood on a headland close to the hotel. On further investigation, it emerged that three other attempts had been made on her life in as many days. We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Peril at End House. You see, Hastings, where the path leads down the cliff to the sea, that is where the boulder so naturally missed Mademoiselle Nick. She had a very fortunate escape. Uh, Poirot, there is something I think I should tell you. Then tell me. At lunchtime in the hotel, while you were talking to Miss Buckley, I had a little chat with her friend, Mrs Rice, or at least she did most of the talking. And what did she talk about? Nick Buckley. Mrs Rice said she was the most amazing little liar and that she had invented the whole story of something going wrong with the brakes of her car. She said that her friend, Mr. Lazarus, told her there was nothing in it at all. Ah, tiens, c'est intéressant, ça. There is, of course, the type that tries to draw attention to itself by having marvellous escapes from death. You don't think that... That Mademoiselle Buckley is like that? No, I think not. You observe that we had great difficulty in convincing her of the danger in which she stands. But why should Mrs. Rice say that? What was her motive? Ah, it is interesting. The little facts that are curious, I like to see them appear. They point the way. The way where? Uh, hmm, you put your finger on the weak spot, my excellent Hastings. Where indeed? To hunt down a murderer after a crime has been committed, say, too simple. The murderer has, so to speak, signed his name by committing the crime. But here, there is no crime. And what is more, we do not want a crime. But you must have some idea, some suspicion. Nothing. On the face of it, no one seems to have any reason for desiring little Nick's death. The property, perhaps? End house passes to her cousin Charles Weiss. The worthy but dull solicitor in St. Lou. Exactly, but does Mr. Weiss really want a heavily mortgaged, dilapidated old house? We must speak to him, certainly, but the idea seems fantastic. And everything else goes to Frederica Rice. Mm, the bosom friend with her strange eyes and the air of a strayed Madonna. What is her concern in the business? She tells you that her friend is a liar. C'est gentil, ça. Why does she tell you that? Is she afraid of something that Nick might say? Did anyone tamper with the brakes of her car? And if so, who? And why should Mrs. Rice's admirer, Mr. Lazarus, the wealthy art dealer who is so knowledgeable about cars, support her accusation? And then there is Commander Challenger. He's all right, I'm sure of that. A real pucker sob. Oh, you have an extraordinary effect on me, Hastings. Hmm? You have so strongly the flair in the wrong direction that I am always tempted to go by it. Ah, well, I shall study the pucker, Commander Challenger. You have awakened my doubts. My dear Poirot, a man who's knocked about the world as I have... Never <laughs> learns... But let us take ourselves off to Mott's garage. Perhaps there we shall learn the truth about the brakes on Mademoiselle Nick's car. It wasn't difficult to lure the proprietor into a discussion about what had befallen the brakes. 
he launched off into a highly technical account of what the trouble was, all of which was entirely beyond me and certainly beyond Poirot. However, one thing became inescapably clear. The brakes had certainly been tampered with and this could have led to a very serious accident. So that is that. The little Nick was right and the rich Mr Lazarus who knows so much about cars was wrong. Ah, Hastings, my friend, all this is very curious. Mm -hmm. So what do we do now? We visit the post office and send off a telegram. Telegram? Yes, a telegram. Poirot wrote out his telegram without vouchsafing any information as to its contents. Feeling that he wanted me to ask him what they were, I carefully refrained from doing so. There was dancing that evening at the Majestic. Nick Buckley was bursting with vivacity, dressed in floating scarlet chiffon that dragged on the floor. Frederica Rice was in white and moved with a languorous, weary grace that was as far removed from Nick's animation as could be. She's very beautiful. <laughs> Young Nick? No, her friend. Is she evil? Is she good? Is she merely unhappy? Ah, she is a mystery. But on the other hand, she is perhaps nothing at all. But I tell you, my friend, she is an allumeuse. What do you mean? You will feel it sooner or later. Remember my words. Very mysterious. Why don't you go and have a word with her yourself? I am anxious to have a word with you, madame, while your friend is dancing. Oh, really? What about? I do not know whether she has told you. An attempt was made on her life this morning. What do you mean? Mademoiselle Buckley was shot at in the garden of the hotel. Did Nick tell you this? No, madame. I happened to see it with my own eyes. Here is the bullet. Uh, but that's... It was no fantasy of mademoiselle's. I can vouch for that. And several other very curious accidents have happened in the last few days. Perhaps you've not heard. You only arrived here quite recently, did you not? Yes. I had been staying with friends at Tavistock. At Tavistock? I wonder, madame, what were the names of the friends with whom you were staying? Is there any reason I should tell you that? Oh, oh, a thousand pardons, madame. I am most maladroit. But I myself have friends at Tavistock, and I thought that perhaps you might have met them there. Uh, Buchanan, that is their name. Well, I can't remember anyone called that, but then let's talk about boring people in Tavistock. I want to know about Nick. Who shot at her, and why? I do not know, as yet, but I shall find out. You may not be aware of the fact, madame, but I am a detective. Hercule Poirot is my name. A very famous name. Madame is too kind. And what do you want me to do, Monsieur Poirot? To watch over your friend. That is all. I shall certainly do that. Thank you, Madame. I need not waste your valuable time any longer. Au revoir. Don't you think you're rather showing your hand, Poirot? What else can I do? It lacks subtlety, perhaps, but it makes for safety. At any rate, one thing emerges plain to see. What's that? The beautiful Frederica Rice was not at Tavistock. Where was she? Oh, see, the handsome Lazarus has returned. 
she is telling him. He looks over at us. Hmm. He's clever, that one. Oh, if only I knew. If only you knew what? What I shall know on Monday. Hmm? You have no longer the curiosity, my friend? There was a time. There are pleasures that it's good for you to do without. What are you talking about? The pleasure of refusing to answer questions. Ah, c'est malin. Quite so. But here comes Mademoiselle Nick. You see, Mr. Poirot, I'm not letting myself be scared by it all. Evidemment, Mademoiselle. <laughs> Dancing on the edge of death. <laughs> it is a new sensation, Mademoiselle. Yes, rather fun. I wish she hadn't said that. Dancing on the edge of death. I don't like it. I know it is too near the truth. Ah, she has courage, that little one. Unfortunately, it is not courage that is needed at this moment. What is then? Caution, my friend. Caution. The following day was Sunday, a beautiful, calm English Sunday. All I wanted was to sit on the terrace and let the morning gently drift by. But Poirot was most unusually energetic. Come, my friend, we will try a little experiment. Monsieur Lazarus and Madame Frederica have gone for a ride in the car and taken Mademoiselle Nick with them. The coast is clear. We went down the steps from the hotel and walked across to the headland and came to an inconspicuous little gate, rather rusty on its hinges. End house, private. The French windows onto the veranda were open, and we passed straight into the drawing room and up the stairs to Nick's bedroom. You see how easy it is, Hastings. No one has observed us. We could do any little affair we had to do in perfect privacy, like cutting through the wire on this picture so that it would be bound to snap before a few hours had passed. It looks very heavy, that picture. Nick had a lucky escape. There's someone in the house. Did I not say how easy it was? I think we should find out who this someone is. What the hell are you doing in here? Ah, it is Mr. Croft, is it not? Yes, that's right, but I... Let us go down to the drawing room. We can talk more comfortably there. So what's all this about, then? How do you know my name? I will introduce myself. Hercule Poirot, at your service. The detective chap. Oh, I've heard all about you. In Australia? Oh, yes, yes. We followed lots of your cases. But the local paper said you were here. The local paper? The St. Lou Herald. Oh, the famous French detective. Belgian. But it makes no matter. This is my friend, Captain Hastings. Pleased to meet you. Oh, hi. Now, what were you doing in Nick's room? Were you looking for something? Oh, she's all very simple. The other night, a picture fell from over Mademoiselle Buckley's bed. She may have told you about it. She certainly did. She was lucky not to have her skull cracked open. I promised her that I would bring her a special chain, one that would not snap. And since she told us that she would be out this morning, I take the opportunity to do the necessary measurements. So, that's all that is. Uh, if you're not too busy, Mr. Poirot, uh, could you spare the time to come back to the lodge? Have a cup of tea? Australian fashion, hmm? Huh? Meet the wife? She'd be tickled pink to meet you. You are too kind, Monsieur Croft. We shall be delighted. Uh, you have all the measurements correctly, Hastings? What? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Follow me. The lodge is only just across the garden. 
Have you uh, been in England long, Mr. Croft? We've always wanted to visit the old country. We took a trip to the continent. Paris, Rome, Florence, all that sort of stuff. But when we were in Italy, there was this train accident. My wife was pretty badly hurt. Spine injury. Oh, what a sad misfortune. And so we came here, found this place. Just what we were looking for. Not too many cars about. No noisy gramophones. Ah, here we are. I brought someone really special for you, Mother. I read all about that blue train case, Mr Perot. That poor Mrs Kittering and the heart of fire. But didn't I read somewhere that you'd retired? Given up for good and all? Ah, madame, you must not believe all you read in the newspapers. So you still carry on the business? If I find a case that interests me... Hmm. Then you're sure you're not down here on business now, Mr Perot? Calling it a holiday may be all part of the game. You mustn't ask Mr Poro embarrassing questions, Bert, or he won't come again. Uh, Mr Poro and his friend were helping Miss Buckley get a new chain for that picture, Mother. The one that fell. Yes, we were just measuring it up. That poor little girl might have been killed. She's a live wire and no mistake. Not much liked in the neighbourhood or so, I've heard. Well, that's the way in these stuck-up English places... I don't wonder she doesn't spend much time down here. And that long-nosed cousin of hers has no more chance of persuading her to live down here than a woman does. Don't gossip, Millie. Aha. So the wind is in that quarter. Monsieur Charles Weiss is in love with our little friend. Oh, he's silly about her. But Miss Buckley won't marry a country lawyer. She's a sweet girl. But I'm concerned about her. She's had what I'd call a, a haunted look lately, and that worries me. I've got my reasons for being interested in that girl, haven't I, Bert? No need to go into that, Mother. <coughs> now, Mr Poro, I wonder if you'd be interested in seeing some snapshots of Australia. It was half an hour before we finally escaped, but the Crofts were nice people, I thought. Typical Australians. You did not think that they were perhaps a shade too typical? calling out cooey and showing us all those photographs on which, as it happens, neither of them appeared? Were they not perhaps playing their parts a little too thoroughly? What a suspicious old devil you are, Poirot. Mm, you are right, mon ami. I am suspicious of everyone, of everything. But then, Hastings, this is a situation in which we can take nothing and no one at face value. On Monday morning, we had just finished breakfast when Nick Buckley was shown up to Poirot's room. The circles under her eyes were darker than usual. I've had a telegram from my cousin Maggie. She's arriving at 5.30 this afternoon. I hope that makes you happy, Mr Poirot. I am very relieved to hear it. Some of my fears at least can be laid to rest. Oh, I wouldn't count on it. Maggie's got no kind of a brain. Good works is about all she's fit for. That and never seeing the point of jokes. Freddie Rice would be ten times better at spotting hidden assassins. And Jim Lazarus would be better still. He has hidden depths, says Jim. And what about Commander Challenger? <laughs> oh, George. He'd never see anything till it was under his nose. But he'd let them have it if it came to a showdown. Well, let us hope that it will not. Oh, I don't know. It's all great fun, isn't it? Is it, mademoiselle? No. No, it isn't. 
I'm afraid. He's beginning to get to me. I, I always thought I was quite a brave person. Oh, but you've shown the most wonderful courage, Miss Buckley. I spend the whole time wondering whether something else is going to happen, and, and if it does, how it will happen. Yes, that is the worst part of it. This morning, I came here by the road. I simply couldn't bring myself to walk through the garden. I feel as though my nerve had gone all of a sudden, and, and that all this should be going on on top of everything else. What exactly do you mean by on top of everything else, Mademoiselle? Oh, just what the newspapers call the strain of modern life, I suppose. <laughs> too many cocktails, too many cigarettes. No, you are not being honest with me. But I've told you every single smallest thing. About the accidents, yes. But you have not told me everything that is in your heart, in your life. Can anyone do that? Perhaps, mademoiselle, it is not your secret. If you think I know something about somebody else or have my suspicions, you're wrong. It's having no suspicions that's driving me mad. I'm not a fool. I can see that if these accidents aren't accidents, they must have been engineered by somebody very close at hand. And you have no idea whom that person might be? Not in the very least. Do you know a queer wish I have always had? I want to produce a play at End House. <laughs> I've seen all sorts of plays performed there in my mind. And now it's as though a drama really were being staged there. Only... I'm not producing it. I'm in it. I'm probably the person who dies in the first act. No, mademoiselle, this will not do. This is hysteria. Oh. Did Freddy tell you I was hysterical? You mustn't always believe what she says. There are times when, when, when she isn't quite herself. Tell me, mademoiselle, have you ever thought of putting End House up for sale? I've thought about it, but that's as far as I've ever got. Would you consider selling it if you got a good offer? No, I don't think I would. Not, I mean, unless it was such a ridiculously good one that it would be foolish to turn it down. Mm, quite so, I understand. By the way, there are fireworks tonight, regatta week and all that. I'm having a little dinner party at eight o'clock. You can see the fireworks splendidly from the garden. Will you come? Oh, we will be enchanted, will we not, Hastings? Many thanks, Miss Buckley. Till this evening, then. Nothing like a party for reviving the flagging spirits. That morning we called on Charles Weiss, or rather at Messrs Weiss, Trevanion and Bettsworth in the main street of St. Lou. He was tall, pale and impassive, and beginning to go a little bald. Poirot had brought a document with him on which he said he needed Mr. Weiss's guidance. It was all settled in a matter of minutes. I am very much obliged to you. <laughs> For a foreigner, you understand, these legal matters can be very difficult. Oh, I'm only too glad to have been of assistance. May I ask who recommended me to you? Miss Buckley. Your cousin, is she not? I tried to see you on Saturday morning. Um, uh, when was it, Hastings? Uh, at about half past twelve. Mm, but you were out, I think. Uh, that is right. I left early on Saturday. Mademoiselle, your cousin must find that large house very lonely. She lives there by herself, I understand. That is so. Uh, tell me, Mr. Weiss. Is there any chance of the property ever being on the market? None at all, I should say. Oh, you must understand I do not ask idly. I myself am in search of such a property. The climate of St. Lou enchants me. It is true that the house itself is in very bad repair, but I gather there has been very little money to spend on it. 
You do not think it possible that Mademoiselle would consider an offer? I'm certain that nothing would induce her to sell. My cousin is quite fanatically devoted to the place. It is, you understand, a family home. Selling it would be quite out of the question. And what impression did this Charles Spies make on you, my friend? A very negative one. The kind of man you'd never remember on meeting again. Did you notice anything that struck you as curious in the course of his conversation with us? Well, I certainly wouldn't have said that Miss Buckley was fanatically devoted to End House. She's fond of the place, but nothing more than that. And did you notice anything else? Uh, he wasn't in his office at half past twelve on Saturday morning. Mm, the time that somebody took a shot at Mademoiselle Nick. So, we cannot clear Mr. Vice of suspicion. Nick Buckley had done her best to give Endhouse something of a festive air for her dinner party. When we arrived, she was dancing by herself to the gramophone, wrapped in a highly exotic kimono covered with dragons. Oh, it's only you. What a nuisance. Oh, mademoiselle, we are desolated. Whom did you hope we might be? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound rude. I hoped you might be from the dressmakers. I've been waiting for my frock to arrive for hours. The brutes promised me faithfully it would be here by half past six. There is to be a dance tonight at the Majestic, is there not? Yes, we're going there after the fireworks. Oh, Nick, have they still not bought your dress? It's too bad. I'm expecting it any minute. Well, they're certainly taking their time. This is my cousin Maggie. Maggie, these are the famous sleuths who are protecting me from the mysterious would-be assassin. Oh. Take them into the drawing room and let them tell you about it. <laughs> now that really must be the dressmakers. We were left alone with Maggie Buckley and I formed a most favourable impression of her. A quiet girl, pretty in the old-fashioned manner. Her face was innocent of makeup, and she wore a simple, rather shabby black evening dress. She had frank blue eyes and a rather nervous smile. Nick has been telling me the most amazing things. Someone took a pot shot at her with a gun in a hotel garden, and a boulder missed her by inches, and the brakes of her car have been tampered with. Surely she must be exaggerating. Whoever in the world would want to kill Nick? Nevertheless, I assure you, mademoiselle, that it is the truth. Well, if you think so, Mr. Poirot, I must say, Nick seems rather fey tonight. I can't tell what's the matter with her. She's behaving with great courage, determined to carry on as usual. It's the only way, isn't it? I mean, whatever one's feelings are, it's no good making a fuss about them. It only makes it uncomfortable for everyone else. At about half past seven, Frederica Rice and Mr Lazarus swept in. She was wearing a blue gown that made her look more like a Madonna than ever, although a very fragile one. Nick came dancing in to greet them. What a simply wonderful shawl, Nick. Red like old Chinese lacquer. Where on earth did you get it? It's a family heirloom, Jimmy. Brought back by great-great-great-uncle Timothy from his travels in the East. <laughs> Quite amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, it's warm. That's the main thing. I shall need it while we're watching the fireworks. That black dress sets it off marvellously. I don't think I've ever seen you in black before. I thought you hated yourself in it. Is there any particular reason? Oh, I don't know. Is, is there a reason for anything? Where's George Challenger got to tonight? I thought you said he'd be here. Uh, he had to go to Plymouth. I expect he'll arrive sometime or other. Maggie, I can't remember whether you've met Mr Lazarus. Uh, Mr Lazarus? Oh, okay. We went into dinner. 
The food was indifferent, the champagne excellent, the conversation rather uneasy. It doesn't look as if there's much hope for that poor chap who was trying to fly around the world. Oh, you mean Michael Seaton? Yes. If he'd succeeded, he'd have been the hero of the day. Mm. He's the kind of man England can't afford to lose. Nick and I met him at the 2K. Mm -hmm. She made quite a conquest. Didn't he take you up flying with him? Yes, at Scarborough. Mm. Have you done any flying, Captain Hastings? Oh, there's the telephone. It's bound to be for me. Don't wait. It's getting late and I've asked people around to see the fireworks. <laughs> I glanced at my watch. It was just nine o'clock. Dessert was brought in and the port. Poirot and Lazarus talked about art. Frederica Rice gazed abstractedly out of the window and I did my best to keep a conversation going with Maggie. Well, I, I do so agree, but it's, it's always like that, isn't it? Come on out, all of you. It's nearly time for the fireworks and the animals are coming in two by two. <laughs> We all trooped dutifully out into the garden. I suppose that Nick had invited around a dozen people, none of them very interesting. Charles Weiss was there, and Mr Croft from the lodge. Oh. 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 It's too bad that Mrs Croft couldn't come. We ought to have carried her over on a chair or something. It's bad luck on Mother altogether, but she never complains. She's got the sweetest nature in the world. Oh. Oh. Good one! Oh. I'm freezing. I'm going to run in and get my coat. Oh, oh please, let me, Miss Buckley. Oh, thanks all the same, but you wouldn't know where to find it. Oh, Maggie, be a darling and get mine too. I don't think she heard you. I'll get it. I need my fur wrap. The shawl isn't nearly warm enough. It's the wind. <gasps> oh! Oh! Ah, that is all they can think of to say. In the end, it grows monotonous, do you not find? Oh. And the grass, it is damp to the feet. Oh, I shall suffer for this. I shall get a chill. A chill? On a lovely night like this? A lovely night? You say that because the rain does not pour down in sheets. But I tell you, my friend, if there were a little thermometer, you would see. Just a bit, I wouldn't mind putting a coat on. You are very sensible. Shall I bring yours? Oh, it is the dampness of the feet, I fear. Uh, would it be possible, do you think, to lay your hands on a pair of galoshes? Not a hope. Oh. That kind of thing isn't done, Poirot. Then I shall go back and sit in the house. Just for the fireworks, should I catch a fluxion de poitrine? Let us go in, my friend. Ah, we are all children at heart. <laughs> Les feux d'artifice, the party, the conjurer. Huh? Mais qu'est-ce que vous avez? There, Poirot. In front of the French window. Huh? Someone's lying huddled on the ground. <gasps> the scarlet Chinese shawl. Oh, mon Dieu, mon Dieu. It has happened. In spite of everything, in spite of all my precautions, it has happened. And this time... The murderer has succeeded. In part two of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Captain Hastings by Simon Williams. Nick Buckley, Gemma Saunders, Frederica Rice, Susanna Hamilton, Mr. Croft, Terence Edmund, Mrs. Croft, Richenda Carey. Maggie Buckley, Elizabeth Conboy, Charles Weiss, Stephen Critchlow, Jimmy Lazarus, Sean Arnold. Peril at End House is dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell 
and directed by Enid Williams. The peaceful summer holiday that Poirot and I were enjoying at St. Lou on the Cornish coast had been interrupted by an attack on the life of Nick Buckley, the owner of End House, which stood on the headland close to our hotel. Poirot had taken every possible precaution to protect the girl's life and had even insisted that she brought down a trusted friend to stay with her. Nick invited her cousin Maggie, but all Poirot's precaution had proved in vain, for on the lawn outside the house, a girl lay dead. We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Peril at End House. In spite of everything that has happened, I should have foreseen. Not for an instant should I have left her side. You mustn't blame yourself, Poirot. If somebody was so determined to kill Miss Buckley... I'm sorry I've been so long, Maggie. I couldn't find my... Huh. What is it? What's happened? Maggie. Oh, Maggie. Yes, Maggie. I thought that it was you, mademoiselle. Is she dead? Yes, mademoiselle. She is dead. But why? Who could have wanted to kill Maggie? It was not her they meant to kill, mademoiselle. It was you. They were misled by the shawl. Oh, my God. Why couldn't it have been me? I don't want to live. Now. I'd be glad. Happy to die. Take Mademoiselle Nick into the house, Hastings, and then telephone the police. Tell them someone has been shot. And then get back to Mademoiselle immediately. She must on no account be left on her own. I helped the half-fainting girl through the French windows of the drawing room and laid her on the sofa. I was trying to locate the telephone out in the hall when Ellen, the housekeeper, suddenly appeared. What is it, sir? Has something happened? Yes. Where can I find the telephone? There's nothing wrong, is there, sir? There's been an accident. Somebody's been hurt. I must ring the police. Who's been hurt, sir? Miss Buckley. Miss Maggie Buckley. Miss Maggie? Are you sure, sir? Are you sure it's Miss Maggie? Of course I'm sure. Why? Oh, nothing, sir. I thought it might be one of the other ladies. I thought it might be Mrs. Rice. Look, please, tell me where I can find the telephone. It's just through there, sir, in in the little room under the stairs. Thank you. If you'd like me to... No, no, that's all. Oh, can you can you tell me where I can find some brandy? It's on the little table by the dining room window, sir. But wouldn't it be better No, no, I... I'll, I'll see to it. Now, leave me. Please. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. I made my report to the police and rang up the doctor and then took Nick a glass of brandy. She was trying to sit up. It's so awful... It's all so awful, everything. I know, my dear, I know. No, you can't know. It's all such a waste. If only it had been me. You mustn't say No, you don't know. Poor Maggie. Poor dear old Maggie, who never harmed a soul in her life. We shared all our secrets together. That this should happen to her. I feel as though I'd killed her. 
Poirot remained out in the garden, conferring with the doctor and the police for what seemed like hours. Eventually he came in with the inspector, who was clearly no stranger to Nick. Not impeding traffic this time, Inspector. This is a terrible business, Miss Buckley. Mr Poirot tells me that you were shot at in the grounds of the Majestic Hotel the other morning. That's what he told me. I thought it was a wasp, but apparently it wasn't. And I gather there were some peculiar accidents before that. I'd just like to know how it came about that your cousin happened to be wearing your shawl tonight. We came into the house to fetch our coats. It was rather cold watching the fireworks in the garden. I threw the shawl onto the sofa here, and Maggie and I went upstairs. I got the coat I'm wearing now and found a wrap for Freddy. Uh, Freddy? My friend, Mrs Rice. Then Maggie called out that she couldn't find her coat. She went downstairs to look for it, but she still couldn't find it. I called down to tell her that I'd bring her something of my own. But she said it didn't matter. She'd take my shawl. She must have gone out then and... Now, you mustn't distress yourself, Miss Buckley. Uh, just tell me this. Did you hear the shot? Or shots? No. All I could hear was the fireworks. That's just it. You'd never notice a shot with all that going on. Uh, probably the work of some homicidal maniac. Well, I, I won't need to ask you any more questions tonight, Miss Buckley. Thank you, Inspector. Good night, Miss. I'm more sorry about this than I can say. I have been talking to your doctor, and with your approval, of course, mademoiselle, we think it would be best if you were to spend a few days in a private nursing home. Because of the... because of the shock? I want you to feel safe, mon enfant, and I want to feel that you are safe. You understand? Yes, I understand, but I don't think that you do. Hmm? I'm not afraid anymore. I don't care one way or another. If anyone wants to murder me, they can. What's happened? There's a policeman at the gate. He said there'd been a murder, is it, Nick? It's all right, George. Don't be an oh. idiot. I'm quite safe. God, but somebody's dead. The policeman said so. Yes, Maggie. Poor old Maggie. Now, come, Miss Buckley. <laughs> I will take you to the doctor's car. We will ask the housekeeper to pack up your things for you. Come. That's very considerate of you, Mr Poirot. I don't want to stay here any longer. What's the matter? Where's he taking her? Uh, to a nursing home. It's all been the most terrible shock for her. What a simply ghastly tragedy. Yes. Poor Maggie. Come and have a drink, Commander. You're all to pieces. I don't mind if I do. You see, I thought it was Nick who'd been killed. I doubt if I shall ever forget the night that followed. Poirot was a prey to such an agony of self-reproach that I was quite alarmed. Ah, oh, what it is to have too good an opinion of oneself. I am punished. I was too sure of myself. No, no. I had put a cordon round Mademoiselle, and the killer slipped through it under our very eyes. And now the position is changed for the worse. It may mean that not one life, but two will be sacrificed. You really think, then, that Nick Butler's life is still in danger? Oh, my friend, for what other reason did I send her to the nursing home? I take the doctor into my confidence. He will make the arrangements. No one, not even her dearest friend, will be admitted to see Miss Buckley. You and I are the only ones permitted. 
You don't think that the inspector may have had a point, that it was the work of a madman? No, 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 no. I am more than ever convinced that the murderer is someone in Mademoiselle's own circle. But surely tonight has ruled out that possibility. We were all together watching the fireworks. Now, could you swear, Hastings, that no one left our little company there on the edge of the cliff? Is there any one person whom you could swear you had seen all the time? No, I, I don't think I could. On different occasions, I noticed Frederica Rice, Lazarus, Croft, and Vise, but all the time, no. Exactly. And yet, where is the motive? Who can conceivably have had a reason for wanting to do away with Nick Buckley? Ah, but always we come back to the same problem. What is there to inherit? That telegram I sent the other day. Oh, yes. You were very mysterious about that. It was to an art expert in London. I wanted him to come down and inspect the portrait of Miss Buckley's grandfather, for which Monsieur Lazarus had offered her fifty pounds. Now, supposing, for instance, that it were worth several thousand. Oh, it is far-fetched, but we must neglect nothing that may bring us nearer the truth. And what did he say? He will come down tomorrow to examine it. Oh, but now I need to employ the little grey cells. I advise you, Hastings, to go to bed. Nope. Not unless you do. Oh, most faithful of dogs. <laughs> but you cannot assist me to think. At least I beg you, take the easy chair. You might find yourself taking, uh, how do you say it, uh, 40 blinks. It was daylight when I awoke. Poirot was sitting where he had been the night before. His attitude was the same, but his eyes were shining with that queer, cat-like light that I knew so well. Tell me, Hastings, the answer to these three questions. Why has Mademoiselle Nick been sleeping badly of late? Why did she buy a black evening dress? Why did she say last night, I have nothing to live for now? Well, um, as to the first, she said she'd been worried lately. Exactly. What has she been worried about? And as for the black dress, well, every woman wants a change sometimes. Oh, for a married man, you have very little appreciation of feminine psychology. <laughs> if a woman does not think she looks good in her colour, she refuses to wear it. And the last, about having nothing to live for, it was a natural thing to say after that dreadful shock. No, 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 Hastings, it was not a natural thing to say. We have there a sudden psychological change. Now, what was it that caused that change? I've no idea. Think, Hastings. Think. Use the little grey cells. She was not like that before dinner. What happened towards the end of the meal? Mm. Yeah. She went out to take a telephone call. Ha. You have got there at last. <gasps> she went to answer the telephone, and she was absent for a long time. Twenty minutes at least. Who spoke to her? Or was there really a telephone call at all? In those twenty minutes, I am convinced we shall find the keystone of the mystery. I know I am right. I had a bath and a shave and went down to breakfast. There was nothing about the evening's events in the morning papers, only confirmation that Captain Seaton's plane had crashed in the Pacific and there was no longer any hope of survival. I was still looking through the papers when Mrs. Rice came in and asked if I could take her up to see Poirot. Madame Rice, enchanté, please sit down. Thank you. Are you two, Hastings? Thanks. Uh, Monsieur Poirot, 
I suppose there's no doubt that this business last night was all part and parcel of the same thing that the intended victim was, Nick. I should say there was no doubt at all. Nick bears a charmed life. Mm, luck, they say, goes in circles. I owe you an apology, Monsieur Poirot. Until last night, I really didn't believe that Nick was in any real danger. Is that so, madame? I can see that everything now will have to be gone into very carefully. And I imagine that Nick's immediate circle of friends will not be free from suspicion. Ridiculous, of course, but there it is. Am I right? You are very intelligent, madame. You asked me some questions about Tavistock the other day. As you will find out sooner or later, I might as well tell you the truth. I did not stay at Tavistock. No, madame? I motored down to this part of the world early last week with Mr. Lazarus. We didn't wish to arouse more comment than necessary. We stayed at a little place called Shellacombe. Oh, yes, about seven miles from here. May I be impertinent, madame? Is there such a thing nowadays? <laughs> Perhaps you are right. How long have you and Mr. Lazarus been friends? I met him six months ago. And you... you care for him, madame? He's rich. Oh, no, no. That is an ugly thing to say. Isn't it better for me to say than to have you say it for me? Oh, well, there is always that, of course. May I repeat, madame, you are very intelligent. You'll be giving me a diploma soon. There is nothing more you wish to tell me, madame? I don't think so. I'm going to take some flowers round to Nick and see how she is. That is most amiable of you, madame, and thank you for your frankness. Au revoir, monsieur Poirot. Goodbye, madame Rice. She is intelligent, bien sûr, but not so intelligent as Hercule Poirot. <laughs> what do you mean? That it is all very well to push the richness of Monsieur Lazarus down my throat. Yeah, I must say, that rather disgusted me. No, 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 mon cher. You always have the right reaction in the wrong place. It is not a question of good taste. If Madame Rice has a lover who is rich and gives her everything she wants, then obviously she would not need to murder her devoted friend. Oh. Uh -huh. Précisément. Why didn't you stop her going to the nursing home? They'll never let her in. Oh, why should I show my hand? Is it Hercule Poirot who prevents Madame from seeing her friends? It is those tiresome doctors and nurses. Look here, Monsieur Poirot, what's going on? I rang up that damned nursing home where Nick is and asked what time I could go round and see her, and they say the doctor won't allow any visitors. I don't believe that Nick really isn't up to seeing anyone. I think you're at the bottom of this, Monsieur Poirot. Now, listen to me, mon ami. If one guest is admitted, others cannot be kept out. Others whose motives might not be as above suspicion as those of the good Commander Challenger. You comprehend? Mm. It must be all or none. And since we all wish for the safety of Mademoiselle... It must be none. Point taken. No embargo on flowers there, is there? Thank you, Monsieur Poirot. I'll send some straight away. And now, while the impetuous commander and Mrs. Rice and perhaps the rich Mr. Lazarus all encounter each other in the flower shop, you and I will drive quietly to our destination. And find the answer to your three questions. Oh, if you wish, but as a matter of fact, I already know the answer. Huh? When did you find out? While I was eating my breakfast tastings. It stared me in the face. Tell me. No. I will leave you to hear it from Mademoiselle. It's good of you to come. You must be brave, Mademoiselle. There is always something to live for. I wish I could believe that. May I offer you my deepest sympathy? So you know. There's no point in trying to hide it any longer. 
Now that I shall no longer see him again. Courage, mademoiselle. I haven't any courage left. I've used up every bit over these last weeks. Regard the poor Hastings. He has no idea what we are talking about. Michael Seaton, the man who was trying to fly around the world, I was engaged to him. Oh, I'm very sorry, Miss Buckley. He died like a hero. You heard the news last night? Yes, it was on the wireless. That telephone call was just an excuse. I wanted to hear the news alone. And how long had you been engaged to him? Since just after Christmas, but it had to be kept secret. Why was that? Because of Michael's uncle, old Sir Matthew Seaton. He was a complete crank. Thought women ruined a man's life. Somebody had jilted him, I think. He was frightfully fond of Michael. He put up the money for the albatross and, and the round-the-world flight. If Michael had pulled it off, well, he could have asked his uncle anything. He'd have been world famous. His uncle would have come round. So you told no one? Not even Madame Rice? Oh, sometimes I wanted to, frightfully. Especially when his plane was reported missing. It was awful not being able to talk to anyone. You do not think that she may have guessed? I don't think so. Of course, she used to hint at things sometimes, about Michael and I being great friends and all that. But am I not right in supposing that Michael Seaton's uncle died a week or so ago? I seem to remember reading about it. Yes, that's right. And did you not consider telling Mrs. Rice even then? I suppose I might have told anybody... But Michael's round-the-world flight was on the front page of every newspaper. It would have seemed rather boastful to break the news that I was engaged to him. And Michael would have hated the publicity. Yes, I agree. You could not have announced it to the world at large. I only meant that you could have mentioned it privately to a friend. I did sort of hint it to one person. I thought it was only fair. But I don't know how much he took in. You told this person because he was in love with you? Perhaps. Mm. You once mentioned that you had made a will. Where is it, mademoiselle? Oh, it's knocking around. At Inn House? Yes, but I can't say exactly where. Oh, I'm frightfully untidy. It's probably in the writing table in the library, or it might be in my bedroom. You permit me to make a search? If you want to. Look anywhere you like. You see, Hastings, I was right. Always I knew there was something lacking, some piece of the puzzle that was not there. Do you mean that this Michael Seaton business has some bearing on the case? Oh, ma foi, do you not see? It gives us what we have been looking for, the motive. Um, I may be very dense, but I can't see it. Now, just over a week ago, Sir Matthew Seaton dies. He was a millionaire, one of the richest men in England. Yes, but... One step at a time. He has a nephew whom he idolizes, and to whom we may safely assume he has left his vast fortune. Last Tuesday, Michael Seaton was reported missing, and the following day the attacks began on Mademoiselle Nick's life. But I still... Don't... Supposing, Hastings, that Michael Seaton made a will before he started on his flight and left everything to his fiancée. That's pure speculation. Perhaps, but it must be so. Because if it is not... There is no meaning in anything that has happened. For it is no dilapidated house that is at stake, but an enormous fortune. But if nobody knew of the engagement... Oh, 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 somebody did know. Somebody always knows. If they do not know, they guess. 
Madame Rice suspected. Mademoiselle Nick admitted so much, and she may have had a way of turning her suspicion into a certainty. How could she do that? Well, for one thing, there must have been letters from Michael Seaton to Mademoiselle Nick, and it is all too evident that she leaves things here, there, and everywhere. And Frederica Rice probably knew about the terms of her friend's will. Doubtless. Mm. So this narrows down our list of suspects. I dismiss Commander Challenger. I dismiss Mr. Lazarus. I dismiss the excessively Australian Mr. and Mrs. Croft. So, only two people remain. One is obviously Frederica Rice. Yes. She is indicated very clearly. Apart from End House itself, which was left to Nick's cousin, Mr. Weiss, everything was to go to her. If Mademoiselle Nick had been shot instead of Maggie, Mrs. Rice would be a very rich woman. I can hardly believe it. You mean that you can hardly believe that a beautiful woman can be a murderess? <laughs> then what about our other suspect, Charles Weiss? But he only stands to inherit the house. Yes, my friend, but he may not know that. Did he make Mademoiselle's will for her? No, I think not. He may well believe that his scatterbrained cousin never made a will at all and that he will inherit as next of kin. You know, that really seems much more probable. Yes, mm, that is your romantic mind, Hastings. That well-known figure of fiction, the wicked solicitor. But it is true that Mr. Weiss would be more likely to know about the pistol and more likely to use it. And to send that boulder crashing down. Mm, perhaps. It really is amazing the way Nick has escaped. Yes, and I can take no credit to myself. Providence? Ah, mon ami, you say that in your Sunday morning voice of gratitude without reflecting that what you are really saying is that le bon Dieu has killed Maggie Buckley. Really, Poit? But I will not sit back and say le bon Dieu has arranged everything. I will not interfere because I am convinced that le bon Dieu created Hercule Poirot for the express purpose of interfering. It is my métier. The French windows of End House were, as usual, wide open. Poirot rang the bell to summon Ellen, who showed not the least surprise on seeing us. Search where you like. The police have been all over the garden since early this morning. I don't know whether they found anything. Were you very surprised last night when you heard that Miss Buckley had been shot? Yes, sir. Very surprised. I can't imagine anyone being so wicked as to want to arm Miss Maggie. If it had been anyone else, you would not have been so surprised, hmm? I don't know what you mean, sir. When I came into the hall last night, you asked if anyone had been hurt. Were you expecting something of the kind? Oh, you wouldn't understand, sir. You, you see, this isn't a good house. But you mean that sometimes in an old house there is an atmosphere of evil? That's it, sir. Bad thoughts and bad deeds to it. It's like dry rot. You, you can't get rid of it. I always knew something bad would happen here one day. In an old house, there are sometimes secret hiding places. Do you know of any here? Well, sir, there, there is a kind of sliding panel thing in this very room. Huh? I remember being shown it as a girl. Only, no, I, I can't call where it is. Big enough for a person to hide in? Oh, no, sir, no, it's just a little cupboard place. About a foot square. No more than that. Ah, oh. well, thank you, Ellen. We shall not need to detain you any longer. 
We will begin our search in the library. What was all that about? The secret chamber. <laughs> I thought it might have appealed to you, Hastings. And I wish to rid myself of the possibility of the unknown intruder. Factor X, let us call it. But it is of no consequence. Let us see if the will is among the papers in Mademoiselle's desk. It took us some time to go through them. Everything was in complete confusion. Bills, receipts, invitations, all jumbled up together. Hmm, but no sign of a will. The only item of interest is perhaps this letter. Mm. Darling, party was too marvellous. Feel rather a worm today. You were wise not to touch that stuff. It's too hard to give up. I'm writing to the boyfriend to hurry up the supply. What hell life is. Yours, Freddy. This must be from Mrs. Rice. Dated last February. She takes drugs, of course. I knew that as soon as I looked at her. Really? You can see it in her eyes. And then there are her extraordinary variations of mood. Well, that must have been what Nick meant when she said Mrs. Rice was not always herself. Undoubtedly. Ah, well, we have drawn a blank here. Let us try Mademoiselle's room. Well, surely, Parry, those are underclothes. I mean, we, we can hardly... <laughs> Decidedly, my poor Hastings, you belong to the Victorian era. Young ladies are not ashamed of their underclothes nowadays. I, I don't see any need to search through those things. Écoutez, mon ami. Clearly she does not lock up her treasures. If she were to hide anything from sight, it would be underneath the stockings and the petticoats. Here are... And here, if I do not mistake, are the love letters of Michael Seaton. Poirot, no, uh, you really can't do that. It isn't playing the game. I am not playing a game, my friend. I am hunting down a murderer. Now, come, you might as well read them with me. Console yourself with the thought that the faithful Ellen probably knows them by heart. New Year's Day. Darling... The new year is in, and I'm making good resolutions. It seems too wonderful that you should February actually... February 8th. Dearest love, how I wish I could see you more often. But honestly, it might upset the whole apple cart. Uncle Matthew has got such a bee in his bonnet about... April 18th. Darling, the whole thing is fixed up. If I pull this off, I shall be able to take a firm line with Uncle Matthew. And if he doesn't like it... Dearest, I'm off tomorrow. Somebody said I ought to make a will, so I have on a half sheet of paper and sent it to old Whitfield. I remembered that your name was really Magdala, which was clever of me, so that's it. I've simply written, I leave everything to Magdala. So, Hastings, it is as I told you. We now know that the fact that Michael Seaton made a will in favour of Mademoiselle Nick is actually recorded in writing. And with the letters so casually hidden, anyone could read them. Ellen? Almost certainly. Or Frederica Rice. Or even Mr. Weiss. Or Ellen could be in league with one of them. Lazarus, perhaps. Ah, it is possible, my friend. With the fortune of one of the richest men in England at stake, who might not find the temptation impossible to resist... But which of them fired the shots that killed that poor girl, Hastings? Which of them? In part three of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, 
and Captain Hastings by Simon Williams. Nick Buckley, Gemma Saunders, Frederica Rice, Susanna Hamilton, George Challenger, Andrew Wincott, Ellen, Hilda Schroeder, the police inspector, David Thorpe. Peril at End House is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Our peaceful holiday in Cornwall had been shattered by the murder of Maggie Buckley during a fireworks party at End House. It soon became clear that it was not she who was the intended victim, but her cousin Nick, who, through the death of her fiancé, had inherited the vast fortune of Sir Matthew Seaton. For her own safety, Poirot had installed her in a nursing home, and none but ourselves was allowed to see her. <laughs> We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Peril at End House. Back again already, Monsieur Poirot? I hardly expected to see you so soon. Yes, Mademoiselle, I am like the Jacques in the case, always popping up again. <laughs> this will of yours... Hastings and I, we have searched all over End House, but we find it not. Think. Try to remember when you saw it last. The trouble is that I never have particular places for things. I probably shoved it away in some drawer or other. You did not put it in the secret panel by any chance. The secret what? Your housekeeper, Ellen, says there's a secret panel in the drawing room. Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. I suppose Grandfather must have known about it, but if he did, he never told me... Are you sure Ellen isn't making it all up? No, mademoiselle, I am not at all sure. Oh, but we are wandering from the subject. Your will, the last will and testament of Magdala Buckley. I put that in, last will and testament, and said pay all debts and testamentary expenses. I remembered that out of a book I'd read. You did not use a will form, then? Well, there wasn't time for that. I was just going in for my appendix op. Mr. Croft said will forms could be very misleading. Mr. Croft? Uh, the, the fellow who lives in your lodge? Yes. Mm. It was he who asked me if I'd made one. I'd never have thought of it myself. Very helpful, the excellent Mr. Croft. He got Ellen in to witness it. Oh, of course. Oh, what an idiot I've been, letting you hunt round End House. Charles has got it. My cousin, Charles Weiss. Ah, so that is the explanation. Mr. Croft said a lawyer was the proper person to have charge of it. So we sent it to Charles. I should have remembered. He sent me those carnations. They're very pretty. <laughs> and the roses are from George, and the lilies are from Freddie. Mm. Oh, and look here. Grapes. Don't they look scrumptious? Oh, you have not eaten any of them? But no, not yet. You must eat nothing that comes from outside. Nothing, you comprehend? You really think they might try again? No, do not think of it. You are safe here. But remember... Eat nothing that does not come from the nursing home. And now, mademoiselle, if you would be so good as to write a note to Charles Weiss authorizing him to show us your will. We have just time to catch him while he is still in his office. I beg your pardon, but I, I really am at a loss to understand. Has mademoiselle Buckley not made her instructions clear? But, my dear sir, no will has been entrusted to my keeping. Come on. Well, as far as I know, my cousin never made a will. 
She certainly never consulted me. But she wrote it herself, you understand? All a sheet of notepaper. She posted it to you. Well, in that case, all I can say is that I never received it. Oh. Then there is nothing more to be said. There must be some mistake. Certainly there must. I never received anything of the kind. Is he lying, do you think? Impossible to tell. One thing is clear. He will not budge from the position he has taken up. So, what do we do now? We go to see the crafts, to see if they remember what happened. It seems to have been very much their doing. Of course I remember. It was when she went in for her appendix operation. It probably wasn't appendicitis at all. These doctors, they're always cutting you up if they can. It wasn't the kind you have to operate on. She'd had indigestion and one thing and another, and they'd x-rayed her and they said out it had better come. Well, I asked her if she'd made a will. Well, more as a joke than anything else. Mm, she wrote it out there and then. And what was done with it? I posted it off to Vice myself in the box by the gate. Uh, Mr Vice says he never received it. You mean it got lost in the post? Uh, that's impossible, surely. Anyway, you are certain that you posted it? Certain, sure. I'll take my oath on it any day. So which of them is telling the truth? Croft or Vice? I don't see what Croft would gain by lying. The will's got nothing to do with him. And his statement tallies exactly with what Nick said. Mm, you are right. But all the same, I am glad that Monsieur Croft was doing the cooking when we arrived. He left an excellent impression of a greasy thumb and first finger on a corner of the newspaper that covered the kitchen table. I managed to tear it off unseen by him. We will send it to the good Inspector Jap at Scotland Yard. I cannot help feeling that our genial Monsieur Croft is too good to be genuine. That afternoon, the police sent round to us a very curious piece of evidence which they had turned up while searching the garden of End House. A torn scrap of paper. Must have money at once. If not, you know what will happen. Do they say whether there were any fingerprints on it? There were none. Of course, it may have nothing to do with the case. Does the writing look at all familiar to you? Oh, that reminds me of something. Th that note from Mrs Rice that we found in Nick's desk. Yes, there are resemblances. Yet I do not think it is the handwriting of Mrs Rice. Come in. Oh, Commander Challenger. Just looked in to find out if you were any further forward. Ah, parbleu. At this moment I am feeling that I am considerably farther back. I seem to progress en reculant. Mm, one step forward and two steps back, eh? Mm. I've been hearing all about you, Monsieur Poirot. You'll get to the bottom of it, all right. That I swear to you. I am the dog that stays on the scent and does not leave it. Got any ideas? I have suspicions of two people. I suppose I mustn't ask who they are. I should not tell you. I might probably be in the error. But tell me, Commander, you would like, I think, to marry Mademoiselle Nick. I've always wanted to marry her. But Mademoiselle was engaged to another man. And she has died the death of a hero. So it's true. Nick was engaged to Michael Seaton. I heard a rumor this morning. You never suspected it before? I knew she was engaged to someone. She told me so two days ago. But she didn't give me a clue as to who it was. Entre nous, Michael Seaton has left her, I fancy, a very pretty fortune. She weeps for her lover now. But the heart consoles itself 
So that's where you've got to, George. They told me I might find you here. Good afternoon, madame. Good afternoon, Mrs. Rice. Good afternoon. I'm sorry to intrude. I merely wanted to ask George whether he'd got my watch back. I called for it this morning. Here you are. It was a watch of rather unusual shape, round like a globe, set on a strap of plain black moiré. I remember that I'd seen a similar one on Nick Buckley's wrist. I hope it'll keep better time now. It's rather a bore. Something's always going wrong with it. Am I interrupting a conference? No, indeed, madame. We were only talking gossip. How quickly the news has spread that Mademoiselle Nick was engaged to that brave airman who perished. So Nick was engaged to Michael Seaton. Mm, does it surprise you, madame? A little. I don't know why. He was certainly very taken with her last autumn. They went about a lot together. And then after Christmas, they both seemed to cool off rather. As far as I know, they hardly met. They kept their secret well. On account of old Sir Matthew, I suppose. He really was a little off his head. You had no suspicion, madame. And yet she was such an intimate friend. Nick can be a close little devil when she likes. But I understand now why she's been so nervy lately. And I ought to have guessed from something she said the other day. Your little friend is very attractive, madame. <laughs> Jim Lazarus certainly seemed to think so at one time. Oh, everyone falls in love with Nick at some time or other. Oh, my God. Well, you are not well, madame? Uh, uh, no, I'm all right. What? George, darling, don't look so worried. Let's talk about something exciting. I want to know if Monsieur Poirot is on the track. It is early to say, madame. Yes, I suppose that's... Um, yeah. uh, um, I'm sorry, I've got ahead. I'll go and lie down. Perhaps tomorrow they'll let me see Nick. You never know what that woman's up to. Nick may be fond of her, but I don't believe she's fond of Nick. But there, you can't tell with women. It's darling, darling, darling all the time, when damn you would probably be closer to the truth. Challenger was in an expansive mood and insisted on accompanying us down to the flower shop in St. Lou, where Pryro was endlessly indecisive about what he should send to Nick. <laughs> Eventually, he settled for orange carnations in a gold basket tied with a large blue bow, accompanied by a card, on which he wrote with an ornate flourish... With the compliment of Hercule Poirot. On the following day, the inquest on the death of Maggie Buckley took place in the old courthouse. Her father, who had come down from the north of England, formally identified the body, and I gave evidence of finding it. Proceedings were adjourned for a week, and Poirot decided we should set off for London. All is peaceful here. Mademoiselle is safe in her nursing home, and the watchdogs, therefore, can take leave of absence. Our first port of call was Messrs Whitfield, Pargeter and Whitfield, solicitors both for Michael Seaton and his uncle Sir Matthew. They confirmed that Seaton had in fact left a will, a scrap of paper but perfectly legal, bequeathing everything to Magdala Buckley. Making her, as the worthy Mr Whitfield so bluntly put it, a target for any ambitious fortune hunter. So, that is settled, mon ami. It was as I thought. Now let us join the good Inspector Jap for dinner at the Cheshire Cheese. <sighs> I thought you'd given it all up and were growing vegetable marrows in the country, Poirot. Oh, I tried, Jap, I tried. But even when you grow the vegetable marrows, you cannot get away from murder. Well, you mustn't be depressed, old cock. Even if you don't see your way clear, well, you can't go about at your time of life and expect to have the success you used to. Mm. 
We all of us get stale as the years go by. Got to give the youngers a chance, you know. And yet the old dog is the one who knows his tricks. He is cunning. He does not leave the scent. Oh, I thought we were talking about human beings, not dogs. Why, is there so much difference? It depends upon your point of view or the dogs. <laughs> you really are a caution, Poirot. You always were. You look just the same. Hair a bit thinner on top, but the face fungus fuller than ever. Come on, what's he said? Chap is congratulating you on your moustaches. Oh, they are luxuriant, yes? <laughs> well, anyway, I've attended to that bit of business you asked me to look into. The fingerprints on the scrap of newspaper you sent me. Yes. Nothing doing. Whoever your Mr Croft may be, he hasn't passed through our hands. Is he known in Australia? Oh, it doesn't look like it. A wild Melbourne. But they've got nothing on anybody of that name or description. Ha uh ha. -huh. It was worth a try, at least. And what about the elegant Mr Lazarus, the art expert who knows so much about cars? The mm, firm's got a good reputation. Quite straight and honourable in their dealings. They're in a bad way financially, though. Mm -hmm. Why is that? A slump in the art market, or so they tell me. Uh, did you ever get a report on that painting, Poirot? Oh, yes. It is worthless. Twenty pounds at most. Now, uh, how about a bit of stilt in a glass of port? <laughs> it's on its way. Sorry I couldn't come up with anything, Poirot. Barking up the wrong tree, I expect. Perhaps. Poirot is a good dog, but sometimes he follows the wrong scent. And sometimes, when there is no scent to follow, he noses around. Seeking always something that is not very nice. It's not a nice profession, ours. And yours is worse than mine. Not officially, you see. And therefore, a lot more worming yourself into places in underhand ways. I do not disguise myself, Shep. Never have I disguised myself. You couldn't. You're unique. Once seen, never forgotten. Ah, oh, quiet. <laughs> Only my fun, don't mind me. But here's a Stilton and the port. It turned out to be a very merry evening talking over the good old days. But I could see that Poirot was worried about the case. I had the feeling that for once he was going to fail. We caught the train back to St. Louis the following morning. There was a message waiting for Poirot asking him to telephone the nursing home. Urgently. Come on. Say it again, I beg. When? Oh, yes, yes, I will come at once. What is it? Why did I go away, Hastings? Why did I go away? Tell me what's happened. Nick is dangerously ill. Oh. Cocaine poisoning. They have got at her after all. It's been touch and go, but she's going to be all right. The trouble was not knowing how much she'd taken of the damn stuff. She will live. Oh, yes, she'll live. But how did it happen? Who has been allowed in? Nobody has been allowed in. But then... It was a box of chocolates. But I told her to eat nothing. Nothing that came from outside. I don't know about that. It's hard work keeping a girl from a box of chocolates. She only ate one, thank goodness. How was it done? Quite clumsily. The chocolate cut in half, the cocaine mixed with the filling, and the chocolate stuck together again. An amateur, homemade job. May I see, mademoiselle? If you come back in an hour, I think she'll be well enough. Escape number five, Monsieur Poirot. Ah, oh, mademoiselle, 
Your old nursing home hasn't proved so safe after all. If only you had obeyed orders, mademoiselle. But I have. You were supposed to touch nothing that came from outside. Uh, no more I did. But these chocolates. I thought they would be safe. After all, you sent them. Huh? I never did anything of the kind. Oh, but you did. Your card was on the box. What? It's in the drawer of my bedside table. See for yourself. Ah, oh, well, here it is. With the compliments of Hercule Poirot. You see? I did not write this. It looks very like your handwriting, Poirot. It was so like the card that came with the orange carnations. I never doubted that the chocolates had come from you. Why should you doubt? Oh, but he has genius, this man. Genius. With the compliment of Hercule Poirot. So simple. I have been tricked, outwitted as though I were a little schoolboy. But it shall not happen again, I promise you. Come, Hastings. What was so strange was that Poirot had no difficulty in tracing where the box of chocolates had come from. It had been delivered by Mr Lazarus. He told us the chocolates were a gift from Mrs Rice and that she had asked him to take them to the nursing home. What's all this about Nick being taken ill? Oh, it is a most mysterious affair, madame. Tell me, did you send her a box of chocolates yesterday? Yes. She asked me to get them for her. She asked you to get them? Yes. But she was not allowed to see anyone. How did you get in? Oh, I didn't. She telephoned. She asked me to send her a two-pound box of Fuller's chocolates. How did her voice sound? Weak? No. On the contrary, it was quite strong. But different somehow. I didn't realise it was she who was speaking at first. Until she told you who it was? Yes. Now, are you sure, madame, that it was your friend? Well, it must have been. Who else could it be? Mm, that is an interesting question, madame. Now, could you swear that it was your friend's voice? No, I couldn't. She certainly sounded different. I thought it was the phone or perhaps her being ill. Would you have recognised the voice if she hadn't told you who it was? No, I don't think I would. But who could it have been, Monsieur Poirot? That is what I intend to find out, madame. What exactly has happened to Nick? She is ill. Dangerously ill. Those chocolates were poisoned. The chocolates I sent her? But that's impossible. Not impossible, madame, since she is at death's door. Oh, my God. I don't understand. The other, yes, but not that. But they couldn't be poisoned. You're making some dreadful mistake, Monsieur Poirot. It can't have been the chocolates. I understand nothing, but nothing. I am in the dark. I am a little child. Who stands to gain by Mademoiselle's death? Madame Rice. Who buys the chocolates and admits it? Madame Rice. And Madame Rice takes cocaine. There is no mistaking it. And there was cocaine in those chocolates. What does she know, Madame Rice? She knows something, but I cannot make her speak. Oh, I tell you, Hastings, it is all very dark, very black. Always darkest before dawn. Oh, spare me the proverbs, Hastings. Now, if you would be the good friend, the good, helpful friend... Yes? Go out, I beg of you, and buy me some playing cards. I suspected it was simply an excuse to get rid of me. However, I misjudged him. That night, when I came into his sitting room at about ten o'clock, I found him carefully building a house of cards. It was an old trick of his to calm his nerves. One needs the precision. One card 
on another so in exactly the right place and that supports the weight of the next card and on top of that I place another but I have it Hastings I have it Mademoiselle Nick is dead what? What's happened? No, no, no. Not really dead. But it can be arranged. Yes, for 24 hours it can be managed with the help of the doctors and nurses and the police, bien entendu. But, but what's the point of it? Four times the murderer has tried and failed. The fifth time he has succeeded. We tell everyone that Mademoiselle Nick is dead and we wait to see what happens. The events of the next day are completely hazy in my memory. I was unfortunate enough to wake with a fever. I have been liable to these bouts since I contracted malaria some years ago. I spent most of the time dozing in an armchair with a rug over my knees, so that much of the day takes on in my memory the semblance of a nightmare, with Poirot coming and going as a kind of fantastic clown. Comment ça va, mon ami? Oh. I come this moment from ordering wreaths, immense, stupendous, and large quantities of lilies. <laughs> Everyone orders something, each more exotic than the last. My little plan, it will make the fortune of the flower shops. I dozed off for an hour or so, and when I opened my eyes, Priora was back again. Clearly, he was having the time of his life. I shall not dress for dinner tonight. I am too much the broken old man. I shall eat hardly anything. The food untasted will remain on my plate. But in my room, I will consume some brioche and some chocolate eclairs, <laughs> which I had the foresight to buy at a confectioner's. And you? Uh, some more quinine, I think. Ah, oh, my poor Hastings. When I next awoke, he was sitting at a table writing. I am compiling a list of questions concerning each person. They may have no bearing on the crime, but they are things that remain unexplained. Would you like to hear? Uh, yes, yes, I would. I feel rather better, I think. Very well. I will read them to you. A. Ellen. Is she speaking the truth about the secret panel? If there is such a thing, why does she not remember where it is? Has she read Michael Seaton's letters? B. Mr. and Mrs. Croft, where do they really come from? Is there some possible connection with the Buckley family? C. Mrs. Rice, does she know that she is Mademoiselle's residuary legatee? Very likely, I should have thought. Who is the boyfriend mentioned in her note who supplies her with cocaine? Why did she suddenly turn faint that time in this room? Is she lying about the telephone conversation? What did she mean when she said, I can understand the other, but not this? Yes, I've been wondering what she meant by that. D. Monsieur Lazarus. Why did he offer fifty pounds for a picture that is practically worthless? Perhaps he wanted to do Nick a good turn. Oh, but he is a dealer. He does not buy to sell at a loss. E. Monsieur Weiss. Why did he say what he did about his cousin's fanatical devotion to end house? Did he, in fact, receive the will? But why lie about it? F. Commander Challenger. I have no question against his name. Is that in itself suspicious? Which leaves us with X, the unknown. Is it possible that there is some mysterious person we have failed to take into account? Hmm. 
So, uh, what do we do now? We wait until the morning, my friend. Tomorrow, if I am not mistaken, certain things will arise. The following day, I awoke feeling weak, but with the fever abated. And with the morning's post came a letter from the parents of Maggie Buckley, whom we'd met briefly at the inquest, enclosing a note she had written to them on the day of her arrival at End House, the day of her death. If you would be so good as to read it to me, Hastings. Um, it's lovely weather here. Nick seems very well, if a little restless, but I cannot see why she should have telegraphed for me the way she did. Tuesday would have done just as well. No more now. We're going to have tea with some neighbours, Australians who've rented the lodge. Nick says they are kind, but rather awful. We'll write tomorrow. The voice of the dead. And he tells us nothing. <laughs> Poirot positively rushed to the phone. Although his own contributions to the conversation were entirely non-committal, when he returned, his eyes were sparkling with excitement. That was Monsieur Charles Weiss, huh? Mademoiselle Nick's will, signed on the 25th of February, arrived at his office this morning. Oh, do you think he's speaking the truth? Well, you mean, has he had the will all along? Hmm. Ah, it's certainly very curious. But I told you that if Mademoiselle was supposed to be dead, we should have the developments, and here they are. Extraordinary. I suppose this is the will naming Frederica Rice the residuary legatee. Monsieur Weiss said nothing about the contents, but there is very little reason to doubt that this is the same will. So, we are back to our principal suspect. Frederica Rice. Or Freddy, as her friends insist on calling her. Mm. Now, why disfigure such a pretty name? Freddy, ce n'est pas joli. Well, there aren't many abbreviations of Frederica. It's not a name like Margaret, where you can have half a dozen. What was it I was trying to think about when the phone rang? Mm. Um, yes, something about the letter written by that poor murdered girl that struck me as curious. Let me look at it again. He read it over to himself several times while I watched the boats racing across the bay. Oh, but I have been blind, blind. Well, what on earth's the matter? So simple and I could not see it. Oh, how could I be such a miserable imbecile? Well, what is it? What couldn't you see? Wait, wait, do not speak. But yes, yes, it all fits in. All the things that have puzzled me, they all have their place. You, you mean you know everything? Nearly everything, all that matters. I shall send a telegram asking two questions, but the answers I already know. They are here, in the little grey cells. <laughs> but what happens when you receive the answers? Uh, do you remember that Mademoiselle Nick said she wanted to stage a play at End House? Hmm. Tonight, we shall stage such a play. Oh. But it will be a play directed by Hercule Poirot, and there will be a ghost in it, for Mademoiselle Nick will have a part to play. But what's it all about? What no, 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 you... no, I will say no more. Tonight my little comedy will reveal the truth. It will be a play such as no one has ever seen. All our suspects shall be assembled at End House, and the murderer will be revealed. <laughs> In part four of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Captain Hastings by Simon Williams. Chief Inspector Jap, 
Brian Pringle. Nick Buckley, Gemma Saunders, Frederica Rice, Susanna Hamilton. Mr. Croft, Terence Edmund, Mrs. Croft, Richenda Carey. George Challenger, Andrew Wincott, Charles Weiss, Stephen Critchlow, The Doctor, Mark Holloway. Peril at End House is dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Maggie Buckley had been shot dead at a fireworks party at End House, but it was obvious to everyone that it was not she who was the intended victim, but her cousin Nick, since there had already been three attempts on her life. For her safety, Poirot had installed Nick in a nursing home, but even there the murderer had made another attempt. To lure the killer out into the open, Poirot had taken the astonishing step of announcing to the world that Nick was dead. Now he was so confident he was about to solve the mystery that he summoned all those involved to end house. We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Peril at End House. It was a curious gathering that met that evening at End House. Everyone on the list of Poirot's suspects was seated round the table in the dining room, except for Ellen the housekeeper, who sat by the door. Frederica Rice wore a black dress, and Mr Lazarus sat beside her, with George Challenger and Mr Croft on the other side. Mrs Croft was next to me in an invalid chair. This is a surprise, isn't it? Makes a change for me, I must say. I think I shall try and get out more. Mr Fyes made a particular point of my coming. Uh, Mr Fyes? <clears throat> uh, this is a rather unconventional gathering tonight, but then the circumstances are most unusual. In an ordinary situation, the will of the deceased is read after the funeral. But, in deference to Monsieur Poirot's special wish, I'm proposing to read it now. Uh, that is why you've all been asked to come here. The will has come into my possession in a rather strange manner. Although dated last February, it only reached me by post this morning. However, it is undoubtedly in the handwriting of my late cousin, and though a most informal document, it is properly attested. The will is quite short. <clears throat> this is the last will and testament of Magdala Buckley. I direct that all my funeral expenses should be paid, and I appoint my cousin, Charles Weiss, as my executor. I leave everything of which I die possessed to Mildred Croft, in grateful recognition of the services rendered by her to my father, Philip Buckley, which services nothing can ever repay. Signed, Magdala Buckley. It's quite true. Philip Buckley was out all alone in Australia, and if it hadn't been for me, well, I'm not going to go into that. A secret it has been, and a secret it had better remain. Nick knew all about it. Her father told her. We came down here because I'd always been curious about this end house Philip talked so much about, and that dear girl couldn't do enough for us. She wanted us to come and live with her, but we wouldn't do that, so she insisted that we should have the lodge, and not a penny's rent would she take. Had you any knowledge of this, Monsieur Weiss? None. I knew Philip Buckley had been in Australia, but I had never heard rumours of an attachment of any kind there. And you won't get a word out of me about it. The secret goes to the grave with me. Well, Mother, this is a surprise. 
Nick never told me what she was up to. Dear sweet girl, I only wish she could look down and see us now. Well, perhaps she does. Who knows? Perhaps she does. And since we are all seated here around this table, why do we not hold a séance? A séance? Well, Wouldn't that be rather... It will be most interesting. My friend Hastings has the most remarkable mediumistic powers. I feel that the conditions are propitious. Do you not agree, Hastings? Oh, yes, 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 very, very propitious. If you would be so good as to turn off the lights, Ellen. Yes, sir. Now, if you would all put your hands on the table so that each hand touches that of his neighbour. Yes, yes, he is already in a trance. Now, concentrate, all of you, concentrate on Mademoiselle Nick. Oh, she is... she is already on the threshold. She is here. Oh, come back from the grave! And now we will switch on the lights. Thank you so much for all you did for my father, Mrs. Croft. But I'm afraid you won't be able to enjoy the benefits of that will just yet. Oh, my God, take me away, Bert. Take me away quickly. It was all a joke, my dear. That was what it was. Just a joke. A curious sort of joke. Well, well, if it isn't my old friend Millie Merton. Inspector Jack. Hand up your old tricks again, I see. No, it was just a joke. Well, that's all it was, really. Whatever yes. is forgery you've ever run across, Millie Merton. A real artist. You mean the will was a forgery? Of course it was a forgery, Charles. I left the house to you and everything else to Freddie. To me? There's someone at the window. Oh! Oh. Oh. Quick, he's out there. Leave him to me. Are you badly hurt, Freddie? No, no, the bullet grazed my shoulder. That was all. It isn't even bleeding. Oh. Give me a hand, will you, Hastings? The right poor devil shot himself. Oh. Here, 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 come on, easy, easy him into the chair. Oh. Freddy, Freddy, I, I didn't really mean it. I didn't. Freddy. Oh. Is he? Yes, madame, I fear he is dead. He was my husband. The unknown factor X. Yes. I always felt that there was an X. I'll get you a brandy, Freddy. It's on that table behind you, Jimmy. Yeah. Yes, I could do with one. Uh, I might as well tell you everything, Monsieur Poirot. He was a hopeless drug addict. It was he who taught me how to take cocaine. I could never escape from him. He used to turn up and demand money. It was really blackmail, I suppose. If I didn't give him the money, he threatened to shoot himself. Then he took to threatening to shoot me. Here you are, Freddy. Thank you, Jimmy. <sighs> I suppose it was he who shot Maggie Buckley. He probably thought it was me. I ought to have told you, Monsieur Poirot, but I couldn't be sure. And then, a few days later, when I saw... You saw the scrap of his blackmailing letter on my table. And I knew that it was only a matter of time. My dear, my dear. I'm all right now, Jimmy. What had we better do? Don't look at me, madam. I'm merely obliging an old friend. That's all I'm doing. Mr Poirot, can't we just hush it all up? You wish that, mademoiselle. Well, I'm the person most concerned. There will be no more attacks on me now. No, that is true. There will be no more attacks on you. And nothing can ever bring poor Maggie back to life again. If you make all this known to the outside world, you'll only bring an awful lot of publicity and suffering on Freddy. 
And she hasn't deserved it. So you want to hush it up, mademoiselle. And what about you, Hastings? Uh, I agree. Mr. Lazarus? Yes, hush it up. Commander Challenger? Best thing to do. Let's forget everything that's passed in this room tonight. I don't think anyone was asking you, Mr. Merton, normally here. Ellen? I won't say a word, sir. At least that's so dismantled. And you, Mr. Vice. You just can't hush up a thing like this. Charles, think of poor Freddie. I'm sorry, my dear, but the facts have to be communicated to the proper quarter. Five to one. And the good Jap is neutral. Armonality. So, only Monsieur Vice declares himself on the side of law and order. You're a man of character. The position is clear. There is only one course possible. And I, too, arrange myself on the side of the minority. I, too, am for the truth. But, Mr. Poirot... Mademoiselle, you dragged me into this case. You cannot silence me now. Sit down, all of you. And I will tell you the truth. I have here a list of persons I believe connected with the crime. I numbered them with the letters of the alphabet, A to F, and then I added the letter X for a person unknown. I did not know who X was until tonight, but I suspected that there was such a person and I was right. But a day ago, I suddenly realized that I must add another letter to my list. Let us call it Y. Another person unknown? Uh, not exactly. It stands for a person who should have been included in the original list, but who was overlooked. Oh. Reassure yourself, Madame Rice. It was not your husband who shot Maggie Buckley. It was the person designated as Y. Then who is why? Chief Inspector. Acting on information received, I took up a position in the house earlier this evening, having been secretly introduced into the place by Mr Poirot. On his advice, I concealed myself behind the curtains in the drawing room. When everyone was assembled in the dining room to hear Mr Vice read out the will, a young lady entered the drawing room and switched on the light. She made her way to the fireplace and opened a small recess in the panelling. The secret hiding place. She took from the recess a pistol. With this in her hand, she left the room and made her way to the hall where the visitors had left their coats on arrival. She carefully wiped the pistol with her handkerchief and placed it in the pocket of a grey coat, the property of Mrs Rice. It's a lie. Every word of it. Voila. It is Mademoiselle Nick who is the person why. And it was Mademoiselle Nick who shot Maggie Buckley. You've gone mad. Why on earth would I want to kill Maggie? In order to inherit the fortune left to her by Michael Seaton. For her name, too, was Magdala Buckley. And it was to her that he was engaged, not you. That's nonsense. You can't possibly prove it. You telephoned to the police, Chief Inspector Shep? Yes, that should be them arriving now. They've got the warrant. You've all gone stark staring mad. If you would kindly come with me, Miss Buckley. Doesn't look as if you're giving me much option. Freddy, give me your wristwatch. As a souvenir, will you? My wristwatch? Yes, here you are. Thanks. And now, since you're so convinced that I'm a murderess, Mr Poirot, and since the Chief Inspector has a police van waiting outside, I suppose we must go through with this ridiculous comedy. A comedy that you yourself devised, mademoiselle. 
But you should not have given the star part to Hercule Poirot. That, mademoiselle, was your grave mistake. And now, the comedy. It is finished. The Crofts, too, were taken away, escorted by Jap. The rest of us, Frederica, Lazarus, Challenger, Vice, and myself, moved into the drawing room. Poirot looked round at us with a gratified smile and that air of mock humility that I knew so well. Eh bien, mes amis, I was fooled. Completely and absolutely. I confess it. The little Nick, she had me where she wanted me, as your idiom so well expresses it. Ah, oh, Madame Rice, when you told Hastings that your friend was a clever little liar, how right you were. Her stories were invented very cleverly to arouse the interest of Hercule Poirot. But why? To give the impression that Mademoiselle Nick's life was in danger. At the start of this whole affair, we have this young girl, Nick Buckley, beautiful, unscrupulous, and fanatically devoted to End House. As I told you at our first meeting. And I, very foolishly, I admit, did not believe you. But End House was mortgaged. It was falling to pieces, and she had no money to do anything about it. And then she meets the young aviator, Michael Seaton, and he is immediately attracted to her. He certainly was. She knows that in all probability he is his uncle's heir, and that Sir Matthew Seaton is worth millions. But Michael Seaton is not really in love with her. He thinks her good fun, that is all. They meet at Scarborough. He takes her up in his flying machine, and then the catastrophe occurs. One day she brought Maggie along with and her. And he falls in love with her at first sight. Nick is dumbfounded, but to young Seton, Maggie was different, the only girl in the world for him. They became secretly engaged, and only one person was permitted to know. And that was Nick. She gets to know that Michael Seaton proposes to leave everything to Maggie Buckley. She pays little attention to it at the time. And then she heard of Sir Matthew's death. And immediately after that, Michael Seaton's plane goes missing. Straight away, an outrageous plan comes into our young lady's mind. Seaton only knows her as Nick. He does not know that she, too, is named Magdala. His will is very short and informal. He leaves everything to Magdala. And in the eyes of the world, Michael Seaton is Nick's friend. If she were to claim to be engaged to him, no one would be surprised. But if her plan is to succeed, Maggie must be eliminated. Time is short. She arranges for Maggie to come and stay in a few days' time. But then a major new factor comes into play. She reads in the local paper that I am staying at the Majestic Hotel. You mean she really knew who you were? Of course she knew, Hastings. Oh. Everyone has heard of Hercule Poirot. <laughs> I believe in the peril that menaces her, and I play into her hands by asking her to send for a friend. She seizes her chance. She does not reveal that Maggie has already been invited. She asked her to come a day earlier than has been arranged. So that she would be at End House with a fireworks party, where nobody would notice the sound of a gun going off. Exactly. 
and how easy the crime is to arrange. On the night of the party, Nick is wearing black. Fool that I was, I concluded that she was in mourning, but it was because she had to be dressed exactly like Maggie. When everyone is outside watching the fireworks, Maggie begins to feel cold. Yes, it did get awfully chilly. The two women go back into the house, but Maggie cannot find her coat because Nick has hidden it, and it is easy to persuade her to wear the crimson shawl. As Maggie leaves the house, Nick steals out after her and shoots her, and then goes back inside to hide the pistol in the secret panel and waits until she hears the sound of voices outside. I'm sorry I've been so long, Maggie. I couldn't find my... What is it? What's happened? Maggie! Oh, Maggie! How well she played her part. Magnificently. Oh, yes. She staged a fine drama there. Ellen said that this was an evil house, and I fear that she is right. It was this house which drove Mademoiselle Nick to take her cousin's life. But the poisoned chocolates, were they the ones I sent her? It was all part of the comedy. If Nick's life was attempted again after Maggie's death, everyone would be more convinced than ever that the shooting was a mistake. So once we were out of the way, she simply rang you up, Mrs Rice, and asked you to send her a box of chocolates. And when it arrives, she fills certain chocolates with cocaine. You mean to say that she actually had cocaine with her? Madame Rice? Oh, yes, she had cocaine. She eats just one of the chocolates. She knows very well how much cocaine to take and just what symptoms to exaggerate. But what about the card from you? Ah, Severisti, she has a nerve. It was my card, the one I sent with the basket of carnations. Ah. So simple. And I fell for it. Why did she put the pistol in my coat? Oh, madame, had it never entered your head that Nick no longer liked you? Did you never feel that she might, in fact, hate you? It's hard to say. We lived such an insincere life. She was fond of me, once. Monsieur Lazarus, tell me frankly, was there anything between Mademoiselle Nick and you? Nothing very serious. I was certainly attracted to her at one time, and then, I don't know why, I went off her. Yes, that was her tragedy. She attracted people at first, and then, as you say, Mr. Lazarus, they went off her. And you fell in love with her closest friend. She began to hate Madame Rice, Madame who had your love, and, as she believed, your wealth. But in that case, why did she leave everything to me? Ah, but that was last winter, when she was still fond of you, and when she had practically nothing to leave. But she remembered that will. She did not know that the Crofts had suppressed it, and she knew that with the death of Michael Seaton, it would appear to the world that you had a strong motive for doing away with her. That was why she made it seem that you had poisoned the chocolates. Tonight, the will would have been read, naming, as she believed, you as the inheritor of the Seton millions. And then the pistol would have been found in your coat, the pistol with which Maggie had been shot. She must have hated me. Yes, madame. You had what she had not, the ability to win love and to keep it. 
I may be very stupid, but I simply can't make head nor tail of this will business. How do the Crofts, or whatever their name really is, come into ah, it? Ah, that is a different operation entirely. The Crofts persuade Madame to make a will and leave it with them to post, but they do not send it. They make another in its place. Then, if anything happens to Nick, the appendix operation goes wrong, perhaps they will produce the document that Millie Merton has so cleverly forged in which everything is left to her. They had no idea that End House was so heavily mortgaged. They calculated on inheriting a valuable property. But Nick sailed through the appendix operation without any trouble. And so they wait. But then came the supposed attacks on Mademoiselle's life. Their hopes begin to rise again. When I announced that Nick was dead, they posted the forged will off to Mr. Weiss. By then they knew all about the seat on inheritance and they thought that their plan had succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Hmm. What I really want to know, Monsieur Poirot, is how did you first come to suspect Nick? Oh, I am ashamed that it took me so long. It was when Maggie Buckley's parents sent me the letter that she had written to them on the day of her death. It contained one phrase that puzzled me. You mean about why Nick had telegrammed her to come on Monday when she was arriving on Tuesday anyway? Uh, bravo, Hastings, that is exactly <laughs> it. So Mademoiselle had lied to me. Or at least she had suppressed the truth. And if she could lie about that, some of the other things that she had told me might not be true also. But still it did not make sense. Why should she want Maggie Buckley killed? And then... I suddenly recalled some trivial remarks that you were making a few minutes before, my friend, about abbreviations for Margaret. And it suddenly occurred to me to wonder what was Maggie Buckley's real name. You wondered whether it might have been Magdala. It was an old family name. Mademoiselle had told me that. Now, what if Maggie were the Magdala Buckley to whom Michael Seaton had left everything? In my mind, I ran over the letters of his that Hastings and I had read. There was a mention of Scarborough. Maggie was with Nick at Scarborough. That's where she met Seaton. And it explains something that had worried me. Why were there so few letters? And why only those? And then it occurred to me. Nowhere in them was there any mention of a name. But that's true. They all began, darling, or dearest love. And there was something else, something I ought to have seen at once. Nowhere in any of those letters was there any mention of the appendix operation that Nick Buckley had undergone six months ago. No concern, no wishes for recovery. That should have told me that the letters were written to a different person altogether. But what made you so convinced that Nick had hidden the pistol behind the secret panel? Because Nick had so positively denied all knowledge of the panel's existence. She said that Ellen must be making it up. But why should Ellen do a thing like that? Again, I realized that Nick had been lying, which is why I persuaded my good friend Jap to hide behind the curtain and observe Nick take the pistol from its hiding place and put it in your pocket, madame. All the same, I don't regret giving her my watch. No, madame, and nor do I. You know about that, too. It's going to be a very unpleasant business. I must see about some form of defence for her, I suppose. There will be no need of that, I think. That is where you concealed the stuff, is it not, Commander? Eh? In those wristwatches? 
I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking Do about. Do not try to deceive me with your bluff, hearty, good sailor manner. It may deceive Hastings, but it does not deceive me. Hmm? You make a good thing out of the traffic in drugs, do you not? You are a useful boyfriend mentioned by Madame Rice in her letter to Nick. I advise you, if you do not want the facts put into the hands of the police, to leave at once. Yes, you're right. I'd quite forgotten. I have an appointment to keep in Plymouth. <laughs> Did I not tell you, Hastings? Your instincts are always wrong. You mean the cocaine was in the wristwatches? Yes. That was why Mademoiselle had it with her so conveniently in the nursing home. And having put all her supply in the chocolates, she asked Madame Rice for her watch, which was full. But tonight she needed it for a different purpose. It will be a full dose this time. Full dose? It is the best way. Better than the hangman's rope. But we must not say so before Mr. Weiss, who is all for law and order. The contents of the watch, it is the merest guess on my part. Your guesses are always right, Monsieur Poirot. I have heard nothing. I shall go before I make myself a fellow conspirator. Good night, Monsieur Poirot. All I can say is that it has been a most remarkable experience. Good night, Monsieur Weiss. Good night, Mr. Weiss. And so, Madame Reis, Monsieur Lazarus, you intend to get married? As soon as we can. Oh. And I shan't need my wristwatch anymore. I hope you will have great happiness, Madame. You have suffered much, but despite everything, you still have the quality of mercy in your heart. Mm. We must be going. It's late. We have spent a strange night in an evil house. But of all my questions, there is one that is still unanswered. The picture of old Nick, Nick's grandfather, over the fireplace. She told me that you once offered 50 pounds for it. It would give me great pleasure to know why you did that. <laughs> As you know, Monsieur Poirot, I am a dealer. That picture is worth not a penny more than 20 pounds. I knew that if I offered Nick 50, she would immediately suspect it was worth more and get it valued elsewhere. Then she would find that I had offered her more than it was worth. The next time I tried to buy a picture from her, she would not bother to get that one valued. And so? She did not know that the picture on the far wall is by Gainsborough. <laughs> <laughs> As you say, monsieur, you are a dealer. <laughs> well, it is time for all of us to take our leave. I trust I shall never have to enter this house again, even though it has witnessed another of my little triumphs. And I shall think carefully before I announce again that I have solved my last case. <laughs> no more tempting the gods, Poirot? Precisely, my friend. This is not the time to go back to the vegetable marrows. Who knows when the next bullet will come rolling towards my feet? <laughs> In the final part of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Captain Hastings by Simon Williams. Mm -hmm.
Chief Inspector Jap, Brian Pringle. Nick Buckley, Gemma Saunders. Frederica Rice, Susanna Hamilton. Charles Weiss, Stephen Critchlow. Jimmy Lazarus, Sean Arnold. George Challenger, Andrew Wincott. Mr. Croft, Terence Edmund. Mrs. Croft, Richenda Carey. Ellen, Hilda Schroeder. Peril at End House was dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Thank you.